Father, it is because you are a loving God. You're an all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God that we are here to worship, but also to be instructed by the truth of your word and by the Holy Spirit. We ask, Father, that uh, everything done in this morning would be to glorify you, to edify the church, and to build up each and every believer. We recognize it is the truth that sets us free. And we recognize that it is the Spirit of God that would labor and build the church today. And we are your hands and feet. We are part of the body of Christ. And so, Father, we want to be healthy. We want to be effective. Uh, We want to have uh, the perspective that you want us to have. So it's in that desire that we come here to uh, examine these things and to consider them and to, Father, evaluate them. We pray all of this thanking you in Jesus Christ, our, our Lord and Savior's name. Amen. I'm not going to spend much time on the overview, but just a couple of things um, that were covered last uh, yesterday. Um, that in North America, whether Canada, USA, um, weekly attendance in church is down. And also, if you look at the history of the AC Church, the membership is down. Um, what was really alarming to me on Eric Jenka's um, uh, forum, Forsaking the Assembly, was that in all of our churches, at least the, the random survey that he did or, uh, of our churches, I think there were 17 that responded, uh, he said that Bible class attendance is only 39%. Uh, to me, that's a woeful number. It should be 100%, and it should go much beyond just a Sunday morning Bible class and Sunday morning service for us as the children of God to be equipped to be about um, the, uh, the work of God. Um, we looked at post-Christian culture, uh, you know, the 15 metrics. We're not going to spend any time, but there's a growing resistance to church and biblical illiteracy. Um, and, there's, and we live in a, a culture and a society that's confused about Christianity. It's comfortable in their Christianity. Um, they don't want to uh, be radical or zealous, and they're contented with their Christianity. And there is the impact of culture itself, the water of our culture. Um, the generations and the cultures that we looked at, you know, they're comfortable with contradiction. And so that's some, a mindset that we must begin to understand uh, so that we can uh, learn how to, to show them how unlivable it is to have that kind of mindset. And that human flourishing doesn't um, work in a, uh, with the mindset of contradiction or even of the postmodern uh, in their thinking where there are no absolutes. There are, everything is truth to whoever decides what truth is. They're also skeptical of leaders and institutions. So when you go out there and you invite them to church, there isn't an overarching uh, desire or an abundance to, to, to be the first in line for that. They love their technology, and they really lack a loyalty and a perseverance. Um, You're going to have to make repeated overtures, repeated uh, development of relationships uh, for, uh, you know, us to be impactful in culture. Um, The view of church in 30, 40, 30, uh, the the millennials are concerned for social issues, and they're critical when the church is self-focused, but there is a positive impact when life-shaping relationships 
take place in the church and the life-shaping relationships with an older adult. That aspect has the ability to keep more young people in the church um, than, uh, than if they don't have that. So we're going to go right into part two. This is the quote that I read this morning about being relevant, about thinking, uh, understanding the generations are different, uh, different culture, and we owe this to the country we live in. I, I found that kind of amazing that here this is, uh, you know, I, I sense that uh, Brother Philip is, is speaking as a foreigner in a foreign country to, uh, in this situation. And, you know, in, in many ways, we are foreigners uh, also, and we need to live like that. Here's another um, quote from the 48 Brothers meeting. The younger generation know what is in the topic of the interest, what is in the heart of the people of their day and time. And therefore, if you will have patience with me, please take this thought and do what you can with it. And be more patient with the younger generation. Do more with them because they are the people who are going to carry on. The gospel was preached by men of Jesus, and Jesus died at age 33. In working with youth choir over the, the past 20 years, um, the early years were more, in my mindset, is like, wh- what were you thinking? Why did you do this? And it was kind of like uh, I had this really high expectation. And I've learned over the years that they are younger. They are more inexperienced. They, are, they have less wisdom. They may have more information. And I need to take what is given me and begin to mold and shape that in the best way that God would provide those opportunities. So I've been thankful for those years of um, opportunity. This is a quote from um, The Forgotten Ways about revival. (laughs) The great Christian revolutions came not by discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when someone takes radically something that was always there. And this is kind of the approach I want to take in this morning, is um, what is there that we just need to elevate and move along in a much uh, more radical way? Here's a question. How many Christians do you think existed in the year AD 100? Well, you see that right there, as few as 25. How many Christians do you think existed at the year 310, prior to Constantine? It was estimated at 20,000. There was a an estimated growth rate of sometimes 40 to 50 percent within the congregations. That's, you know, just doing simple math, that's 95,000 a year, okay? But if you look at it differently, in five years, they more than doubled, and in 10 years, they tripled, and that's using an even more conservative rate of 20 percent. So looking back at the early Christians, there was tremendous growth going on. Um, we need to ask the question, what were they doing? Well, let's, before we even examine what they were doing, think about the context that this was going on in. They were members of an illegal religion. They were persecuted by the government, and they were persecuted by the church. And at best, they were tolerated, and at worst, they were persecuted. They didn't have church buildings. They had some small converted house churches. They didn't have the scriptures as we have them. The Council of Nicaea in 325 is when the, the scriptures that we know, the canon of scriptures, came about. You know, they had letters here and there, but they didn't have, uh, and they had, you know, uh, most of the Old Testament, but they didn't have it in the form that's so readily available to us. And they didn't have seeker-sensitive services, youth groups, and worship bands, yet they were growing. And it, they made it hard to join the church. Because when someone was interested in joining the church, they counseled them and said, 
your life is dependent upon this. You may lose your life. And so they said, we want you to think hard about this. This, is good. this lifestyle is going to be radically different than what you've known. Are you ready for that? And they had them think about that seriously, long, and hard. Now let's look at the Chinese church. This was the early church we just looked at. Prior to Mao Zedong, they were well-established at churches and largely modern, modeled after Western forms. It's because they had Western missionaries that came in there. And it was estimated to number 2 million. Okay, Under Mao, he banished foreign missionaries and ministers. He nationalized church property. He killed most of the senior church leaders, and he killed or imprisoned the second and third tier leaders. And he banned all public meetings with threats of death and torture. Did the church grow? In the 1980s, with the rise of the bamboo curtain, when there was a relaxing of, uh, when Mao was gone, and a relaxing of the, um, uh, the persecution, they found a thriving church. David Aikman, who was the Time Magazine correspondent in Beijing at that time, wrote a book, Jesus in Beijing, in 2006, and he estimated that there were 80 million Chinese Christians. Now, if you study the Chinese phenomena, you know that they were from A to double Z as far as their understanding and theology and all of that. Tremendous amount of work had to be done with them and is being done with them. But, you know, but a lot of the, the reason there was, there was such a disparity was because they didn't have the scriptures. They were banned and burned. Even current research estimates that puts the number at 120. So the cause of their growth was persecution in both instances. But notice that their focus remained Jesus and the gospel, a radical discipleship, community, and mission. Um, this, to me, is, 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 is definitely, in my observation, lacking uh, in culture and in society today. Their practice was they were dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Um, they, were, they had prayer, a lot of prayer, and passionate love of God, and the incarnational love of others. They were, they were willing to love their neighbor and put their life on the line. Because to share with the neighbor that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ meant that that neighbor could go and turn you in and that would be it. But both of this is, you know, falls back to loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. So the, there was no formal structure or hierarchy and tradition were non-essential. They were gone. All of the leaders were eliminated. And so they had to begin to... Um, grow and understand and move. So they had relevant organizational structures that arose afterwards, and the leadership followed an Ephesians 4 model. And I'll go back to that um, in a little bit. But let's look at our history. Um, this is um, by a um, Serbian researcher, um, and he wrote a paper that's available. Um, and there's, he's one of many. And, and what's interesting is, is as these people are looking into our history, the Nazarenes, uh, more and more people are beginning to write about it. In fact, there was in, a couple of years ago um, a gentleman um, who studied free churches in um, Eastern Europe, you know, all of the different free churches. The Nazarenes were chapter four. And when he read about the chapter four, uh, when he wrote that, it so intrigued him and, and, and kept him motivated that he did his doctoral thesis on the Nazarenes. 
Um, it's in Serbian. I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm interested in doing it. Fantastic. Thank you, Dushko. Okay, so this is, um, he's quoting uh, Freilich's um, application uh, to the Continental Mission Society. So then in 1836, there were, uh, in five years, he had founded 14 churches with 427 baptized members. That's a lot. We don't even have 427, you know, members growth in all of our denomination over five years. It's gone down. Again, what is going on? Um, a Orthodox magazine in Serbian estimate, uh, started, uh, made these comments that the Nazarene movement started to spread beginning in 1867. And so if you go back, in 1836, um, Freilich was busy and had founded five. Um, in 1871, uh, 1867, it started to spread. And this is what he's reporting. This is what they were doing. They met in the evenings. They read the Bible and they sang songs from the harp of Zion or Zion's harp. Okay, so it wasn't just Sunday morning get together. It was an evening thing, more than once a week. The leaders were arrested, but the Nazarenes started to spread quickly in the villages and other places. It is possible that they witnessed person to person and held prayer meetings in the houses of interested neighbors. The growth was troubling to the Orthodox Church, and they had an interconfessional conference in June of 1887. And what was interesting is it brought people together that had never been together before. In fact, were warring with each other, not physically warring, but you know, at definite odds. 14 Serbian Orthodox, one Roman Catholic, six Lutheran, and two Reformed. What was the reason they came together? Stop the spread of the Nazarene sect. It was their focus. This is, it was causing, you know, it was certainly being noticed and causing um, a disturbance among the Orthodox. Um, a Orthodox sources uh, estimate that in Hungary, in the Vojvodina area, that there were 6,800 Nazarenes in that area. Uh, I know the numbers don't add up, but I'm just using his numbers, you know, because they're estimates. Now, they're saying 68,000, um, 10,000, I've heard. 22,000 is actually, uh, this um, writer is quoting a, the son of Samuel Freilich. I don't remember the year uh, that there were 22,000, but that included um, North America as well. 40,000 and even 100,000 in just um, Eastern Europe. Um, I think the 100,000 is high. The 40,000 is the number that I come across more and more. What in, intrigued some of these researchers is not only the, 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 the pace of the growth, but the, the kind of the growth and the quality of the growth. The quality of the growth was um, focused on how they were committed to scriptures and to following it with all of their heart, soul, and strength. But the, the pace of the growth was, 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 was truly there as well. And <clears throat> so they were, again, that troubled them and but it was growing. Uh, he quote, goes on to quote, they, they didn't have formal pastors and church polity was basically congregational. I mean, they were isolated. They didn't have ways to go back and forth. Or if they did, there was distances in time that were involved. So um, they, they had to operate a lot um, congregationally. Some were elected elders. They met in homes. Um, and because of the severe persecution, um, they, continue, they didn't build buildings. 
Now, this is an interesting statement that comes out of his research. And this is what he said of the Nazarene movement. Now, let's just pause for a minute and, and see, do we agree with this? The act of baptism cleanses the believer from all sin. The day of baptism is the day of salvation. After baptism, the believer is sinless and a perfect life is possible from thereafter. Following this point, the teaching about the Christian church was that the body of believers consists only of the baptized who are able to live sinless lives after their baptism. And for Freilich and followers, um, you know, no social life. They didn't go to restaurants, theaters, they were forbidden newspapers and attending other churches. Complete obedience was demanded uh, of the elders. Now, I don't know of anybody here today that agrees with that. Um, and yet, um, this growth was growing. And again, this is an outside researcher looking at this. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to examine this with a, a big grain of salt. But every one of those things that were pointed out there, I have heard mentioned by some in the church. I mean, not so much recently, um, but in my you know, 60 plus years, um, those have definitely come up as positions of some in the church. Now, again, going back to the spreading of the gospel, Philip Braun was saying he's concerned over no growth. He says in 1936, the, um, the census said 1663 membership. In 1946, he says, this is a little less. Again, this is the 48 Brothers meeting. Okay? He says, if 10 years in business showed no gain, we would say that management should be improved. Okay? Um, and then if you look at these numbers of, uh, nine, whoops, let me go back there, of 1936 to 2000, that is a 1,530 growth over 91 years. That's 17 members per year. And if you divide that by the 50 churches, approximately there now, that's a third of a member per year. That's abysmal growth. You know, nothing that corresponds to what was happening in the early church in China and even in the Eastern Europe. Uh, he says, there's no growth over the last 10 years. Can we truthfully say that the gospel preached in the language of the nation with the thoroughness it has been done in other nations with the patience as the Apostle Paul speaks? Okay, I find this very interesting here. Brother Philip recognized the need to be relevant in the culture that he was in. And back then in his time, it was language, whether it was German, Serbian, Hungarian, Romanian, whatever, he says, we've got to move to an English language. My position and observation is, if we are going to be relevant, like they wanted to be relevant in that time, we're going to have to rethink the King James Version only. That is not the language of North America. And I know I might be, you know, touching a, 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 a tender spot there, but if this is about being relevant and about growing, and the mission of the church is to take the message in the language that's relevant without compromising, and they go on to say that, uh, we don't compromise the, the message of the gospel, we have to compromise, but we have to adjust our method. <clears throat> Philip Brown, quoting his father, said, the Lord is not satisfied with the church because it has failed to introduce the preaching of the truth in the English language, and he gets very strong here, he says, and it is a sin, and God will bring judgment upon the church. Now just pause and let that settle into your mind a little bit. They were recognizing we need to adjust. And if we don't, God will hold us in judgment. 
Why are we going backward? If any one of us present here, uh, present here is going backwards in business, we would take inventory. How much more should we take inventory of ourselves as the various congregations from teaching brothers as well as individual brothers? And this was Tony Betts just re-echoed what Brother Philip was saying all along. What is the problem? And he kind of answers it himself in these meeting uh, minutes. There's an unwillingness to change and there's an insistence on doing it the old way. We must change the method, but not the message. And there again, he's, he's saying, it's the gospel. It must be the gospel. We must protect the gospel, but we can change the method. Let's face the facts. These are problems for you and for me and for the young folks, our young children, the welfare of the church, and the honor and the glory of our Heavenly Father. I can tell you in working with young people for the past 30 years that if this doesn't happen, the young people will not stay. Why should I stay is their question. And, you know, everything that we've covered so far is we really have to be thinking hard as how do we preserve um, the message, but also the young people from leaving. Henry Michelle even says, I would say that we are in a time when, where we expect people to come to us. We are as fishers of men and are expecting the fish to come and fall in the net. It's kind of like, you know, I'm going to go fishing and the, all I do is get my rod out of the closet and I wait in my living room. Come to me. He says, no, there's, you know, I have to do some research. I've got to go to where the fish are. I've got to be observing of all of culture and developing relationships where I can sense the Spirit of God moving in the heart of someone. Um, yeah, I don't know why this is uh, backwards, but uh, let's go this way. Freilich preached about just about every night except Friday, and that was reserved for minister discussion and regarding the gospel we teach. Again, you know, we have a mindset, it's Sunday and maybe Wednesday. Maybe. You know, if you look at the statistics, Wednesday night is maybe a little bit higher than Bible class. But he went on to say, we need funds to to raise, to train, and send English preachers uh, to these churches that don't have them. Uh, do not deny them, the youth, an opportunity for discipleship. The emphasis on discipleship, we've got to be doing much more than we are and do more with the generation because they're going to carry on. So um, we don't come to you as beggars. We come to remind you and ourselves that we have the same interest in the work as Jesus did. Now, How do we evaluate that in our own lives? Do we have the same interest as Jesus did? Well, you start to look at where you spend your time and where you spend your money. And if it's just Sunday morning, don't tell me that you're as interested in the gospel as Jesus was. It just doesn't work. Okay? It takes time. It takes money. It takes the support of prayer of all the congregations, and I want to express my approval of this program. Well, the program that he was talking about was the beginning of the foundation, the, um, as we know it, the ACCF, okay? Because we needed to organize. We needed to, to be diligent and be more effective. And part of it was the education of children. He says it must start at home, and obviously that's the case, okay? But he says... We have found in our home circle that education has been very much neglected. This has a great deal to do with our lack of growth. If you're not going to to Bible class on Sunday morning, shame on you. You are role modeling the wrong kind of idea to your children. 
Now, I understand there's exceptions. There were times that Margaret couldn't go. There's times that I couldn't go. It's not like, okay, I got to be there. I don't want this to become a duty. I want this to come from the heart. And that's what really I think he's trying to address here. Where is your heart in all this? Are we so immersed in the culture of trying to make ends meet and, and just keeping up, you know, um, that because change is happening all along, you know, that and they were, as foreigners in this foreign country, were dealing with a lot of it. But he says, no excuse. We need teachers. Let us learn from the public schools or tactics. Now, I certainly wouldn't echo that at this point in time, okay? Um, they apply the best training they can get to teach our children. The idea is, let's do our best, okay? They go and prepare themselves if we could only grasp how important it is that we have prepared teachers. Those that are willing to invest hours and hours of study and preparation long before they stand in front of a class or a, uh, a church. He says, let us therefore remember that youth must be harnessed. Youth must be put to work. And if we fail in this, we shall fail, I believe, to accomplish the greatest effectiveness which we could accomplish. He says, that's it. Our purpose should be focused. It should be laser pointed on what are we doing with the youth. Okay. Barna echoes some of this same stuff that, you know, there was, was being said 70 years ago. The fact that teens lack commitment, you know, that's evident as you study the, general, the generation, that they're always busy, definitely uh, uh, supported by uh, uh, studies, and there's a scarcity of student leaders suggests that relationships and engagement in church are not reaching sufficient depth. Again, we're talking about relationships, that mentor of an older person with a younger. New and creative approaches must, uh, may be called for, such as sponsoring teens for pre-college um, gap year programs. You know what's interesting? <clears throat> when President Obama, before he was leaving office, there was a lot of um, newsprint done on what college is his daughter going to? You know, it was kind of a big secret. And then the day came when it was revealed, Harvard. But she was going to take a year off, a gap year, and go work in like the Peace Corps or some other program like that. And then that got even more print than anything else. Everybody was enamored by, wow, the president's daughter is taking a gap year. Well, you know, that, that shouldn't be something so strange to the believer. Do you know that the Mormon church, and we didn't study that, I, I, um, although many years ago I did, they were growing exponentially. Part of it is because of education. Part of it, it was because of evangelization. In, when I was in high school, I remember my best friend on the basketball team um, wouldn't come to Sunday practices, and I, I seldom went either. But he wouldn't come because he said, um, I'm, I'm, I'm Mormon. The other thing that I learned about him was, you know, we wanted to have a breakfast together, a kind of a team breakfast, and he said, well, I can't make it. I go, why? Uh, you know, it's early, it's before school. He goes, well, I'm going to school already. I go, well, where? Well, in, in the church. Every Monday through Friday, the Mormon students in, in the high school went to a 45-minute class on their church, on their doctrine, on their history for 45 minutes before they even showed up to, to high school. I go, hmm, it's interesting. We can't even get people to Bible class on Sunday. Okay? And then... <clears throat> 
Uh, so, so that was, but the other thing about the Mormon church and why they were growing was the education part, but, but the expectation as well. Young men and young women were expected by their parents, by the church, to go on two-year missions. Do we see that expectation out in our circles? Maybe that might be one of the factors of why we're not growing, because we haven't raised the bar. Surveys after surveys tell you if you give a greater expectation to the people, especially the young people, they will rise to that level. Um, just a challenge for me, and I'm, I'm having to take this internally and, and think hard about it myself, you know. Um, so, again, but when they do come, they want to see maximum faith. You know, if you get this younger generation into your church, they want to see something that's alive. It's, it's vibrant. It impacts not just Sundays. It impacts every single day, every decision of your life. They want to be, something part of, uh, they want to be part of something bigger, something transcendent. They want to make a difference in the world. Don't we? Of course we do. But if we can harness this, this innate desire among them, and, and a lot of it's misguided, if we can harness that, just think about what can begin to happen in our churches. They want to connect with the vision of a hopeful future now, next year, and eternity. And I tell you, we have the best message. There is nothing else in culture that offers what the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, offers. So I mentioned earlier that some of these early church models that were causing a lot of growth was the Ephesians 4 model. So I want to take a little bit of a time and just kind of read through this and think through some of this. Paul said, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Okay. He was in chains because of who he was and what he was doing. All right. Didn't stop him or it didn't make him think, well, should I have done something different with my life? No. And I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. As a church, we know that that's a standard. But as a church, and I'm looking globally across, I mean, across the ACC denomination, I am so aware of churches that are splitting and disintegrating because we are not speaking the truth in love, we are not humble, and we're not bearing with one another in patience. This is part of our calling. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm familiar with, you know, some differences in, in several different churches um, that where one party left, they wanted to bring in a reconciling a team to just independent, to let's help deal with the issue. And one of the parties says, no, I'm not interested. Well, frankly, I don't see that as a biblical response at all. Okay. They're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And I think that's an important aspect. What Paul is writing here is that our unity is in the Spirit. Because as a born-again believer, as a Christian, God has gifted us with the Holy Spirit. We are united in that. And so he says, because there is the unity of the Spirit, maintain it. Work at it, okay? There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called one hope that belongs to your call. And again, he's talking about 
the call is just not to salvation, that it's, but it is a call to hope, it's a call to work, it's a call to work within the church, but also outside the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And again, he's kind of talking about all of this unity language. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, that's the, the, the basic point. And when I deal with youth that are believers that have named the name of Christ, I have to go back to this because sometimes I don't at all see that evident. That, you know, they are living a godly lifestyle. But I have to begin that God has died for them. He's given grace, and I need to respond to what I'm observing. Okay? And sometimes that I'm seeing is, you know, as I talk about growth in the church, I see that the growth, first of all, becoming really messy. Okay? And that's exactly what happened in China. Growth was exponential. They didn't even know how to deal with it. It was messy. The, the issues that they had to deal with were just astronomical. I mean, when we start talking about, like, the, the forum on homosexuality, you know, how are we going to deal with that? That's not a process where you sit down on two counseling sessions and you get the person to see the right way and go on. It's a long-term process. We have to begin to think of t- investing time. God has given us the measure of his gifts, okay, of Christ's gifts. But notice here, he gave the apostles, okay? He's not talking about the gifts of the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about people that he's given to the church to be busy about this call. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. What? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, what is important in here is to see that every aspect needs to be part of our thinking. It needs to be embedded in our thinking. We're we're not... Yes, we may have more of a, a... gifting towards one another, but we have to see how they all work together in the church, how they all are necessary, how that we need to be raising up evangelists, we, we need to be raising up shepherds and teachers, because it's to equip the saints for the work, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. He says, remember, we have the unity of the Spirit, but we don't yet have this unity of faith. And it's upon its it's upon us that we move in that direction till we all attain to the, to the knowledge of the Son of God, mature to the stature of the fullness of Christ. No longer children tossed to and fro by the waves. You know, we're not going to let culture influence us. As the teaching really progresses in the church, it's embedded deep within. And, you know, and this is not just on Sundays. It's got to be much more proactive and um, uh, thorough. Uh, that we can stand against all of the culture and its deceitful schemes. So in taking those five points, the apostolic task, apostolic also means sent. And we're not talking about Peter and Paul. I mean, they gave us the word, the inspired word of God. And we're not talking about apostles like the Mormon church has, new people that are expounding new messages. And, oh, I have a revelation of God. No, we're talking about those where the leadership keeps the the vision, the mission. It's the mission of the gospel. It's the mission of sharing it with your neighbor. It's the mission of loving God. It's all of that, keeping that. And the prophet is the truth teller to the believer. You know, what are we doing among ourselves? Standing for the truth. The evangelist is the truth teller to the unbeliever. He communicates the gospel 
and, a, and, a, and ask for a call for personal response. Now that might be publicly, it might be one-on-one, but we need all of that. Shepherds, pastors, they care for and develop uh, the people of God by leading, nurturing, protecting, discipling, and the teacher helping the community of believers seek and understand the wisdom of God. I don't think this is anything new here, but it's just the mindset that we must begin to have. Because in one sense, this is what was really practiced by the early church. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. The idea is everybody has a job. It's not just the preacher, the teacher. Everybody is working towards this goal. That is the mission mindset. When each part is working properly, that's when the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, back to the brothers' meeting. Um, It was interesting how that, and I don't remember um, who this quote was from. I'd have to look it up again. But they uh, went back to talk about the power of the word of God. And that's why I keep going back to that startling statistic of only 39% in Bible class. The power of the word of God, okay, there's two aspects in Psalm, in the 176 uh, verses of Psalm. The power of the word of God and the absolute wasting and destroying power of the word of man and the tradition of man. Every true household of God, every true church of God has been destroyed, not by the word of God, but by the undermining influence of the good intentions, the humanizing efforts of human beings. It is therefore much more needful that we have life in God, life in the Spirit, than it is that we are to be regulated and ruled by outward traditions and ordinances. We are building up Christ, the rock. And if we have, we're building upon Christ, the rock. And if we have tradition among us, let us substitute the rock for it. Let us see how much better the Word of God can, be, can accomplish its end. Okay, look forward. Again, there was this idea in that brother's meeting, we need to organize and evangelize and train. All right, And he says there must be some financial support for brothers who give up part or all of their work to carry other time to carry on this work. We need to find those who are willing to, vote, to devote themselves to this. And there is such a need at this present time, the work must not be neglected. Now, do you think this was new ideas at that time? I think not. If you go to our church history book on page 51 and 52, um, there's this concept of a training institute. On November 12, 1842, at Freilich's request, a resolution was passed to start an institution for training suitable teachers and evangelists. But this plan was never carried out. The persecutions created new questions and tasks, and daily new problems arose, but yet training was needed. Now, my question is, could that be part of the problem? I won't say it's the only issue. There's a lot more. But the training was neglected. With that in mind, and I read that, um, that verse, uh, that history book, back when I was in college, I did a report on it. I was intrigued by this, and it's never left me. And I've pondered upon this. I'm saying, what can we do? What can I do? And as life unfolded and years went by, 
God was working in me. And in, in a unique way, and I've shared this with many of you, I won't go into the time now because I want to leave time for questions and answers because I really want this to be interactive, is God gave me an opportunity to work afternoons on a Friday with young people in North Phoenix. And what happened in that uh, exposure of, of working with them in an after-school program, I realized after a year that these kids come from such broken messes with such crazy ideas and understanding of God and future and purpose that it's going to take much more than a um, evening, uh, Friday evening um, basketball or soccer program with a focus time. And as that moved along, God opened the door for me to move to Ohio. Um, I was asked to consider to move to help the small church in Ohio, in Worcester. And um, I gave it a prayerful... It happened here at camp. It wasn't this location. But um, um, I had gone to visit the Worcester church three or four weeks after it had started. They had their first service. And the brothers shared with me, you know, how they had prayed over the, about this for several years and uh, how the God was moving and what they were doing. And I made the simple comment, I could get excited about something like this. And so that was in April during the foundations meeting. The next July at camp, and this was in Pennsylvania, I'm walking down and one of the brothers that had shared this uh, vision and the work of the, the church in Worcester came up to me and says, you know, we realize after three months that we need more core families. And because you said that you were interested in the work here, would you consider praying about coming? And he says, I'm not asking anybody. I want people to sense a desire to come and be a part of God's work. I'm not going to go and recruit. And so I said, I would. And like I did often with some of these things, I was committed to pray about it, but I thought that I'd pray about it a month, you know, maybe two, two times a week. Well, what happened was, is I couldn't get it out of my mind. And the burden just grew and grew and grew. And so um, I, I finally said to my wife, I, I think God is leading us to go there. Well, in uh, uh, several other events, God did make it very clear for us to go. And with that, I, you know, the commitment came and says, you know, Lord, I, I, I sense the need to work full time. And so <clears throat> I didn't know how I was going to do that. And so the, the issue was, I know that we've never had full time leaders or pastors in, in our denomination. And so that was a huge hurdle for me. OK, and again, I'm going back to some of these things, you know, maybe different methods and uh, ways of thinking. I, it was a tough road for me to get over that initial hurdle. I had never asked anybody for money other than my dad, you know. But, you know, when it came time to talk to my boss, and I was in management, I was the chief financial officer of a real estate development company, I needed to talk to him well in advance of the time that I was leaving because I didn't want to leave the company in a precarious situation. I wanted to be a smooth, long-term transition. And so I remember that this was number seven of seven specific issues that God said, I want you to deal with, okay, that you will have to deal with. And um, 
The, the seventh was, how am I going to support my family when I go? So I, I shared with my boss, not even knowing, because all along I'd be saying, God, can you give me a hint even? And he goes, just trust me, just trust me. And so I shared it with my boss. We had a conversation, planned to meet the following week to cover all of the transition. But as we ended that first conversation, he says, how can I help you? And I was asking, you know, the immediate thought was, um, you know, I didn't have one. He goes, well, well, in a week. So what happened is that next week came, I'd focused everything on all the transition, a lot of different things to think through. I finished the hour and a half with him and, you know, said, this is how I see it working. So then he said, great, okay, I understand. Now, what about the other question? How can I help you? I felt like, oh, I totally spaced that one out. And um, so I'm thinking, and I honestly, I remember these thoughts in my mind. Well, I could ask him for money. It made me feel uncomfortable. And if I did ask, what do I ask for? And I thought, $10,000. Are you ridiculous? That is audacious. That's, can't even, you know, imagine that. And, um, and I think the number was really $5,000. It wasn't, you know, even that I thought was audacious. And so I'm struggling. He goes, I see you're struggling. How about if I make a suggestion? <laughs> Such a relief came over me. Yes. He goes, I know that when you leave, and we, I told him August 15th would be my date of leaving. I know that when you leave, that um, there's going to be a transition period. I said, yeah. He goes, well, let's say during that transition period, I leave you on payroll. Oh, man, that sounds like a great idea. And I immediately jumped to the next thought. Okay, we pay on the 15th and the end of the month. I'll get a, a half a month's pay. And I go, oh, what if he pays me a whole month? Ah, no, no, that won't happen. Before I had time to even finish my thoughts, he went on to say, and let's say that that transition period is to the end of the year. Four and a half months. And I was thinking 5,000 was way off the chart something that I couldn't even bring myself to ask. And when God said, you trust me, he gave many times more than what I was even thinking to ask for. And this, is, uh, this has been underlying in my mind. I want to ask, I w- first of all, I want to think big about God. I want to have a big vision of this mighty God who is a king of glory, a mighty warrior who's omnipresent, omniscient, and and all-knowing. You know, he's there, and he's all-powerful. I was so puny in my mindset. That, I think, is probably the number one issue in our mind. We have to start really thinking bigger about God. Remember that quote that says, a radical revolution happens on not taking something or thinking something new. It's taking what's already there and really believing it and acting upon it. I think this applies to the church today. So when we made the move, you know, over time, it didn't happen at first. Um, God laid it on the heart of the, and I'm chairman of the Domestic Actions Projects Committee of the foundation, to begin a curriculum. We had already been having people come and live with us on an ongoing basis. Um, We probably had about 45 Uh, over the years before we started this. And so, uh, to me, um, the whole thing is for such a time as this. 
And I don't think it's, it's new ground. It's really taking what our forefathers and what the church has done is to see Christ formed in each believer. But it's taking it in a more concrete way and laying it out. And, and our goal is to, go, to the glory of God, to the edification of the church, the strengthening of the believer and the witness to the world. So that's what undergirds us, those four pillars there. Our mission, and I love this uh, about Ezra and Nehemiah, how they came back after captivity, after years of decline, of years of persecution, years of, 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 of oppression. And Ezra prepared his heart to seek and to do the law of the Lord. So he read the law of God clearly and gave the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. I really believe that this is what Freilich was thinking about and what he was desiring. So we want them to discover the biblical narrative more deeply. We want to form their hearts through discipleship by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Again, these are picking up things that uh, our forefathers were saying. We want to engage the world with truth and love in a clear, confident Christian worldview and service. You know, I think um, uh, the brother was sharing that 25% of the churches in, in today's culture think that homosexuality is okay. Well, that comes about when you don't have a clear Christian worldview or biblical worldview. Our method is, as uh, we find in Timothy, study to show yourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's a full-time program. We have evening classes and we have special conferences. And there are opportunities this year. Um, The dates are not set in stone, but approximate those dates. Um, You know, this past year we had 10 students um, uh, from near and far, and we were delighted to to see them move along. Now, I'll be the first to say, did they move along at the pace that I wanted them to? No. Did some of them really stumble along the way and forget why they were there? Yep, that happens. But that happens, you know, with your own children, too. And and so I have to keep coming back to patiently guide and teach and uh, do that. And, you know, there are times when uh, I'm reminded that I didn't do such a, a good job. These are just some pictures. We do try to have some team building stuff that goes on and to build community um, within the group that's studying, but also with um, those that are attending. Um, this is, you know, the house where uh, the church meets down here in the basement. We have some legacy evening classes in the basement. Margie and I live in this level. And then above level, which used, was supposed to be the care uh, caregiver level for my mom and my brother that were going to live in this middle level. Um, We had um, nine guys living up there um, during the course of the year. Um, So it was a little noisy sometimes. Um, Just some pictures. The benefits, again, it's to expand their biblical knowledge and strengthen their Christian worldview. We, We give them practical services and ministries because it's harnessing this energy of the youth and moving it forward and, and making it, um, you know, you need to understand it's not about knowledge, it's about doing the work, uh, but then intentional community. And that's one of the things that as you study um, the growth in, in early churches is there was so much community. Part of it was because they were dependent upon it. They only had each other. They were oppressed on every side. But we want to develop that and to impact them for the greater of the kingdom and to, to be radical our Anabaptist forefathers were termed radicals. You know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a term that we need to get back to. Radicals often seem as extreme terrorist type of thing. But, you know, radical in how we stand apart or set apart uh, in the culture. 
That is uh, my presentation. Um, we've covered a lot of material. We've looked at different role models. Um, the microphone was up here. Oh, uh, Zoli has the microphone. If there are questions or comments, I, I see Gary uh, has one right over here. I think it was the uh, thesis from Joe Pfeiffer that sort of did uh, uh, looked at our church history and categorized it in three different kinds of movements. One is the preservationists, those who say, don't like change, this is the way the gospel is, we're not going to change. And in general, I think most of us will understand that will never work, and it gen generally becomes fossilized. Um, you have sort of the middle of the road that, that generally try to, you know, do some sort of changes over time, and then you have sort of the, the progressive ones, which uh, are trying to be as uh, culturally relevant as possible. Uh, probably most, if not all of us, can think of examples in the past number of decades for all three of those movements that, that we either have relationship with people in those movements or we're aware of them. And ultimately, it seems, at least from my perspective, um, that the two that I would have expected to be most successful, that is, those who are most culturally relevant or those who, let, let's call the middle of the road, in general, from my perspective, they don't seem to be successful either for, di for different reasons. One is those who are you know, trying to be as culturally relevant as possible. In general, the commitment level to, let's say, the institution, the denomination, is not really there and they jump ship very quickly, very easily for either frivolous reasons or some in the extreme um, actively work to undermine the very institution that you know, they were hoping to build. Um, and then of course, we're not kingdom building here on this earth, right? We're trying to build right. disciples of Christ, but ultimately it needs to be reflected in some form in, in uh, you know, the church in some way as a body of believers. Of course, the people who are, let's, say, let's call them the, the uh, uh, there's a better term for it, I can't think of it at the moment, but the middle of the road, that's sort of a challenge too in our culture because it's, um, perhaps it's not as culturally relevant as it needs to be. And as soon as you try to make changes, you have the tension that often can tear apart a congregation where you have people moving in either direction, and ultimately um, all forms lead to some sort of demise. So I don't know if that's unique in our time and place because of the cultural pressures and the, 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 the time and place that we live in. It would be interesting to sort of get your perspective on, on how we can change that or if that's possible to change. Okay, I'm gonna, that's a lot. Let me uh, just address... Um, a little bit of the progressive idea. Um, yeah, I've, I've noticed that too. Um, it's, it's disappointing. But what I see a little bit of a nuance there is a lot of times they become, they want to be culturally relevant through a program. Okay, different music, a different layout of the room, something that's, you know, not embedded within the heart. And so when you move along that way, it, you're going to lose interest after a while or something will set you off and, okay, I'm, I'm out of here or something like that. So I think, not in every case, but in, in a lot of cases, that's a missing integral element of that. And then uh, the progressives, and yes, um, this is where I think it goes back to the Ephesians 4 model. Yes, there's always tension and change, you know. Um, you know, when... You, ha you deal with it at work, you deal with it you know, when you're changing jobs, you, whatever you're doing, uh, locations of a home. Change always brings about an increased tension, stress, uh, energy consumption, okay? But when the change is moderated with this idea, especially change within the church, is, 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 is housed in this idea of speaking the truth in love, you know, being very open and... Uh, uh, 
and vulnerable about and getting to the core point. I think a lot of that is just because we live in an, in a society that wants instant gratification, instant change, instant everything, you know, whether it's coffee or you know whatever. We've lost the sense of having a, a longer-term perspective. I think that would help in a lot of these situations. Um, but those aren't the only answers, but just some comments to that. Um, there's a hand in the back there. Yeah, I was just wondering, um, at a more global level, it seems like your, your thought was that, that to engage the millennials and to really connect with them was to move into a discipleship training program. Um, and you're using legacy as, the ex- legacy as the example. Are there any bigger, broader kind of observations, objectives, or, um, or things that we should be considering in how to engage the millennials? Um, you know, as we were talking yesterday about what we were seeing as, as what the issues are, anything else to add, I guess? Um, I think that the way I would begin that on a local level is to gather everyone together and, and pray and say, how can we? Look at the talents that you have, okay? And every church is going to have a, di- a different dynamic there. Um, but, to, but at the same time, not just think about a program, but think about how can I better educate these millennials? Is it, you know, and I don't really have specifics. I mean, there's, there's different programs. There's different things that you can do. Um, I would, you know, encourage someone um, to really, I would evaluate where are your devotional time? How are you doing there? If that's lacking, everything else is going to be lacking. I think it goes back to the, the, the Word of God being central and focused. Um, time is a big issue, Bob. I mean, you're busy, you work, you've got to provide um, I think part of it needs to be going back to this idea of do we have someone that can be full-time to help? I mean, maybe in our local or at least part-time in, to give them that job. Um, that's just another idea. Maybe there's some ideas. I see some lots of hands. Maybe, okay, go. You run with it. <laughs> um, I'm actually on my way out to get my kids, but I was just going to encourage everybody. I guess it's along these same sort of lines. Norton, um, since March of 2011, we've had in place an alternative class uh, that focuses on worldview training for, and it's, you know, directed at the college career age people, but it's for also anyone else who wants to attend. And essentially our theme verse now is um, in in Titus uh, 1.9 to to be able to teach sound doctrine and refute error. And that's sort of, you know, the meta-narrative of the course. So it involves doctrine, it involves the, the culture and all kinds of different topics. But I would just encourage anyone who's interested to have, you know, after prayerful consideration, to approach your leadership and just get a conversation going. I mean, if you're interested enough to do it, that, that's number one. Don't, don't worry about the other stuff yet. Just try to get something in place and, and go from there. But don't, don't hesitate because the numbers that you gave during this presentation are just so alarming yeah. that it, it really is essential to have something in place at, at the local level. So. Okay. You know, and one of the simple things that we did, Bob, and it was kind of we fell into it, um, there were some others, and then maybe to Louie afterward, is we adjusted our format 
in Worcester. And that was because we were bringing in lots of kids from the community, and we'd ask them to sit through Bible class and then, you know, pay attention, and then sit through the service and pay attention. Well, their, their attention span was much shorter than that, so we flipped it. We put the service first and the Bible class second. And then we adjusted the Bible class, whereas we followed the 1 Corinthians 14 model. I, I don't quote me on the exact chapter, but where it says that, you know, if someone speaks, then if someone has a question, let them ask after they're done speaking. So that's the context of our Bible class. We actually take what was said in the sermon and we began to flesh it out more. Someone, I mean, because th- what happened was I was preaching and all of a sudden a hand went up from the audience. It was one of these young kids from the community. He says, I don't understand what you're saying. What do you mean by that word? And, you know, thankfully my son was there who was a communications major. And he says, oh, well, this is what he means. Answer the question. Oh, okay. And then we went on. I go, wow, why didn't I see that before? You know, we're asking them to listen, but they have questions. And so that's kind of the reason why we flipped it, not only just because of the attention span aspect, but because of the practical side of it, too. Uh, Fred. One of the things that came to mind is the fact that uh, we have examples of Bible-believing congregations, uh, uh, Anabaptists even out there, and, and mission examples of where growth is taking place, and what are some of the key elements that a denomination is doing that is, is helping a lot. And in my travels to Brazil and to Ghana and other places and, and reading material, the discipleship that happens in small group and home meetings similar to what Freilich yeah. had is huge. Yeah. And if we catch a vision of our churches to not replace Sunday, yeah. the Sunday service always should be a central teaching. It should be the unifying and celebration and worship together. But get God's people in the Word to look into the Scriptures together like the early church did, like at Freilich's time because of persecution. We can do it intentionally we don't have the persecution that forces us to do it. That's coming. But the underground church of China, there's so many examples in history, and growing, healthy missions and growing churches are getting together. Huge percentage of the churches are studying the word together, and they're praying together. And all the gifts that are in the Ephesians model that you showed are operating not just on Sundays. They're yeah. operating in those small groups. Exactly. Yeah. And when that happens the visitation, the giving, the involvement, the discipleship, the mentoring, all of that happens to change the church and make it grow. Okay. Pass that to Louis over there. Um, just a comment. Does anybody know uh, how large the congregation is in Papua New Guinea? I don't know. It's it, tens of thousands. Okay. All right. But, you know, if you look back at how they grew, it's the same basic model. They were concerned about teaching teachers, training them full-time. And it was in the Word of God, and the power of the Word of God, that they grew and they were able then to multiply and sustain that growth as well. Louis? I, I just wanted to share an observation. I found the information you presented very interesting, very good. But one observation that kind of hit me is a lot of the, um, a lot of the information was from brothers from years ago, when I, like perhaps 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And they had some ideal plans in their minds of what it's going to take to expand the church. And my only observation is either the plans were not accurate because our church has not grown. In fact, it's probably shrinking a little bit. Or the plans weren't implemented. So in other words, their visions weren't implemented at all. And that's my observation. And 
and I would tend to agree with some of your observations, especially uh, our Windsor Bible class, the percentage of the church that attends is probably about 3%. And so I, I'm, I don't want to offer any comments as far as what I think maybe um, a good resolution would be. Just to share, I think we need to, to key on that. Either those, those forefathers' ideas were either A, not accurate, or B, weren't implemented. And the only thing that comes to my mind is um, Brother Al's message last night. Um, I share the same sentiments that, including myself, we are easily distracted where mm -hmm. our, our true, uh, if I can say, goals in life or attention perhaps is not quite the church. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that um, a legacy student that graduated last year said one of the key benefits of coming to Legacy was it helped me with distractions. I, I didn't have them. I, yeah, I still could find some, but for the most part, I wasn't working, I wasn't doing certain things. I, I see our time is up. Um, I appreciate all your comments. Um, if you still want to comment uh, to me personally, uh, come on up. Um, I'll be here for a while, but thank you for your participation.